Do you know God? And more importantly, does God know you? Today we are continuing our study in the book of Hosea. We are coming to Hosea chapter 8. And we will see that the people of Israel were very, very religious. But God says that he did not know them. I'm afraid that this is true for much of the church today too. That we could be very religious going to church and reading the Bible. But do we know God? That is the question we need to consider today as we come into Hosea chapter 8. So I'll be reading this in sections and then we'll discuss each section. There's some very interesting passages in here, including about people who are trying to sow wind. So stay tuned to later on in the, this uh, sharing so you can see what, what will happen if you try to sow wind. Okay, chapter 8 verse 1, Set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant. And rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, my God, we, Israel, know you. They're claiming to know God. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So let's go through verse by verse and consider what God is saying to us today. Set the trumpet to your lips. Now a trumpet was used to make important announcements or proclamations. So this is saying, listen up, pay attention. God has an important message for you. And I believe that God has an important message, not just for Israel, but also for us today. And so he says, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. So what does it mean? Well, a vulture gives to us the image of this bird, which is flying in normally a circular pattern above a dead carcass. Or if not dead yet, then a carcass that they think that the vulture thinks will soon be dead. So in the last chapter, we saw that God was saying, your time is near. Okay, it's like a clock ticking down. It's coming you don't know it. Here he's saying the same thing. Your death is coming. Your judgment is coming. The vulture is coming close. It hasn't yet eaten your dead carcass, but it's not far away. And so this actually came true in history. All of these warnings to Ephraim, Samaria, this is the the northern kingdom. God warned them again and again, and they didn't listen. And soon Assyria, Assyria would swoop in and would judge them. And they would be exiled. They would be not just exiled, but basically dispersed forever. This is what happened to the northern kingdom. Now listen to what they say. Uh, To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. So the people of Israel are claiming to know God. They're claiming to have a relationship with him. After all, they're God's chosen people, right? And they always would would be. It was their birthright to receive God's blessings. Or so they thought. Now, later on, John the Baptist would call out this uh, kind of thinking, this kind of taking God for granted thinking. We can see that in Matthew 3, 9. He says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So the people were trusting in their historical relationship with God. We're the chosen people. God's given us his law. God has sent us his prophets. He chose us. We are special. And they were trusting in that. Abraham's our father. 
And they say they know God. But God doesn't know them. More than a cultural knowledge of the facts is necessary to have a relationship with God. In the book of James, it says the demons believe God and tremble. You know, Satan has a very orthodox doctrine. Satan is very familiar with the fact that God created the world. He knows God did it in six days. He's familiar with the Trinity. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows Jesus died. He knows Jesus arose again. He knows all of these things. But is Satan and are his demons saved? Of course not. They know the fact. They know the truth. They have good doctrine in that sense. But they do not submit themselves to God. They do not surrender themselves to God. They do not repent of their sins or come to him for help. So reciting dogma is not enough. Saying, I know God. I know everything about him. I've read the Bible 10 times. And I can, you know, answer all the questions in the Westminster Catechism. Not enough. Not enough. Jesus gave a similar warning in the book of Matthew. Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of wickedness. So saying we know you is not enough. The question is, does God know you? God knows your heart. He knows what you think. He knows all your motivations, why you go to church, why you read the Bible, why you pray, why you give. He knows all of these things. He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. Now, this is a very frightening thing that one day God will say to people who thought they knew him, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, I know that I don't want to be in that category and I'm sure that you don't either. So we need to think through. How can we be sure that God knows us? How can we make sure that our salvation is genuine and that he never says to us, depart from me? You need to think that through. You need to have some time to do self-evaluation, self-examination, to check on your own heart and to say, God, reveal to me any wicked way in me. Whatever he brings to light, we need to bring to him in prayer. We need to place our faith only in him, not in good deeds or in the name of religion or in being religious. Let's move forward. Verse 3, it says, Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. <clears throat> Israel chose to follow idols. They chose to follow the practices of these cults and false religions. And so they basically were turning things into a demonic religion. And so this is a reminder of the depth of the depravity of people. If there's any group of people who should believe in God, who should have accepted Jesus as God's son, it should have been the Jews. They had prophets, they had scripture, they had... They had many revelations from God. They saw many miracles that God did. They should have believed in him and submitted themselves to him, and yet they still didn't. And so their lesson is a reminder that people need help, that people are basically sinful, and that we need God's grace and mercy upon us to change us. Even with all of these blessings, they spurned the good. They want to know part of God anymore. Why would they do such a thing? How could they be so foolish? How could they be so blind? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Well, this is the answer. How could they do this? How could we continue to sin against God? Well, our heart is deceitful. The heart of man is wicked. It is this wicked heart that causes people to call evil good and good evil. So it says here again, Israel has spurned the good. I think in probably every period in history, believers have said, this is the worst one. Uh, everything is going crazy. This is the worst period. This is the worst culture. This is the most sinful it's ever been. Maybe it's always true because maybe it's always getting worse and worse. I don't, but, but probably not because there are some revivals from time to time. But the world today does seem to be descending into evil faster than ever before. In the past, <clears throat> many sins were secret. People were ashamed about it. They were kept uh, in the closet, so to speak. Um, and now these things are being committed in broad daylight. So those who do them are applauded. In fact, many people who do certain sins, they're given special protections and privileges and they're being celebrated and they're being highlighted as exemplary mod models or they're being highlighted as heroes and their sins are being promoted and then those who disagree with these sins are vilified. Dwight Longnecker has a very good quote on this. He says, first, we overlook evil. Then we permit evil. Then we legalize evil. Then we promote evil. Then we celebrate evil. Then we persecute those who still call it evil. We can see this cycle. Permitting and legalizing and promoting, celebrating and then persecuting those who call it evil and even these days there's a big push i was reading an article recently about more places they're legalizing different drugs and legalizing different things and the idea seems to be okay if you legalize it you take off the stigma against it and you could do it safely <clears throat> um you know or everybody's doing it anyway but the more these things are legalized and accepted then the more the more problem it brings and the more people actually do it so you actually need to punish evil if you want to stop evil. So we should not join with the world to call evil good and good evil. What can we do? Well, you're just one person. I'm just one person. But it starts with, we can start with one. Stand up for what is right. Stand up for what is true. Stand up for what is true in your family by teaching your children what is true and what is right and teaching them God's word, teaching them how to use their, their mind to discern what the world is saying and to compare it to God's word to see what is true. Here's something you could do with your family. Choose a current event or a current trend in society. There's all kinds of trends around us. Many are not good. And then <clears throat> talk about this trend and talk about it with your family. Talk about how to view this in light of scripture and let your kids share about it and you share about it. And prepare them, right? Don't just like totally isolate them from these things. And then suddenly when they go out into the world, they see all these crazy things. They don't know what to think about it. In your family, talk about it and prepare them so that they know what scripture says. So that they're ready to defend their belief. So that they have a strong foundation to stand on. Your children will likely face an even more twisted world than you do, unfortunately. So prepare them. So Israel spurned the good. We don't want to spurn the good. We want to hold on to the good and cling. In fact, the New Testament says cling to what is good. Verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. <clears throat> so Israel history in that time period is full of examples of treachery, assassinations, coups, 
entire families being wiped out as ambitious people take the kingdom by force and start over and make new dynasties, you know, every other Tuesday. But they're doing things not through God. They're not consulting God. Think about how it was at the beginning. Saul was the first king over Israel. God told Samuel, go and anoint him. David was the second king. God told Samuel, go to anoint him. The people recognize this was from God. God gave clear instructions to Samuel. Samuel followed it. And the people recognized these kings were chosen by God. But in later years, Israel abandoned this concept. And they didn't consider at all, is this God's will? Is this God's choice? They just did what they wanted. They did their own thing, right? They basically took God totally out of the equation. Prophets were not consulted. They were not counseled with. So this is the expected result of tossing aside God's authority. They toss aside God's authority, and then this is the way that they go as a nation. So many of these kings were not blessed by God at all. Being a king in Israel in those days was one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. You would have a very short life expectancy. So reminder to yourself, if you ever go back to Old Testament uh, Israel in a time machine, do not apply to be king. Your reign is likely to be <clears throat> very short-lived. Unless you're a good king, pleasing God, which they were not. Okay, so moving on. That means we need to seek God's will, right? Do not do things on our own. Their problem is they did things without consulting God. In the book of James, James says the same thing, that people, they say, oh, I'm going to do a business, and they go to this city or that city, and they, they do their business, but they never ask, does God want them to do that business? They never ask, does God want them to move that city, or where to do it, or when to do it, or how to do it? God is not in the equation at all, and that's the problem. We should not do things without considering what does God want us to do. So when, where you send your kids to school, you should consider what is God's will. What job to take? What is God's will? What city to move to? What church to go to? Always be putting God first in your decision-making process. All right, let's go forward. They made idols. And then verse 5, it says, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. What is this calf? Uh, it is not the golden calf which was made when they came out of Egypt. It's another one. 1 Kings 12, 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before him. This was, I believe, Jeroboam who did this. Uh, yep. Jeroboam did this. So Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, said, look, we don't want our people going to Jerusalem to worship God there. He was afraid that they would then be, they would then be loyal to Judah instead of to him. So he said, let's make our own gods. Let's just make our own religion. And so he made calves. He made calves. Now, I don't know what is a fascination with calves. Like, why would someone think that the baby of a cow is a good god to worship? I don't know. Um, it doesn't seem particularly strong or ferocious or anything. You know, I, I, I don't get it. I don't have good answers for these questions. But I do think why people worship idols. And Paul talks about this some in Romans 1, 21 through 23. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. 
their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, people knew about God. They understood the truth of God. They saw much evidence for God in creation and through general or specific revelation. But instead of worshiping God, they worship idols like these golden calves which they made. Why do they do that? Well, the thing about this kind of golden calf is they don't have conscious thoughts. They'll never require you to do anything you don't want to. If you worship a calf, you're master of your own religion. They don't discipline you. They don't rebuke you. They don't correct you. You can do whatever you like. And then you can feel spiritual while you're doing it. And say, yes, I'm religious because I worship all the time just doing whatever you want. So such false religions are inevitably a way to slave people, enslave people. Satan uses these religions to enslave. But people do it too. <clears throat> the priests, leaders, uh, the political leaders, they use deaf and mute idols as surrogates. And then they can pass through these surrogate um, idols, whatever teachings they, they want to you know, force their followers to follow. So what was going to happen? The craft, the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Every single man-made religion will suffer the same fate. If you remember in the book of Daniel, the king has a vision about the golden statue, which represents all of the uh, man-made uh, nations in the world, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and so on. And a rock, which represents God's kingdom, will hit this, this statue's feet and shatter it, meaning all the things that man makes man's kingdoms, man's religion, they'll all be shattered and what will be left will be God's kingdom. So we look forward to that day. All of the idols we see in our, our culture around us, all of the, the lies in our culture around us, they will all be broken to pieces and the truth of God will remain. So let us stand on the truth now and stand on the solid rock so that our foundation will not be broken to pieces. Let's move on. Verse 7. Uh, 7 through 10 is about the punishment that is coming. So I'll read these verses together, then we shall discuss. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Now I love verse 7, and I love the imagery it shows. It says, they, they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. What does this mean? Well, at first glance, it is a bit confusing. How can you reap a whirlwind? Uh, how can you sow the wind? It's actually not complicated at all. Think about a farmer. Think about a person who sows seeds. Normally you take seeds, uh, maybe wheat or squash or corn or whatever it is you're planting and you go and you plant them in the soil. Have you ever seen someone going around with an empty bag, reaching their hand in the bag, you know, grabbing some wind and tossing the wind out to the ground? If you were to see someone doing that, imagine if you were to see a, a farmer going around with nothing in his hand and just doing this sowing motion and you go and you think, hmm, am I missing something? You look closer, are the seeds really small? And finally, you see that there's no seeds at all. 
It's just when there's nothing in his hand, you would think, mm, you know, this guy, you know, he's a little bit out there. He's, he, you know, he's a little bit crazy, right? And it would be even more crazy to think that he's going to reap something. Can you imagine that farmer stowing the wind like this? And then a month or two, he goes out and every day he goes out in the morning and he looks at the soil and, he, and he, you know, he's waiting for the crops to grow up. Um, you know, you would think, okay, you know, a little bit loony. What's he going to reap? Well, well, if you sow the wind, you reap the wind. You reap the whirlwind. Well, you reap nothing. If you sow wind, what do you reap? Nothing. Now, this is saying when you sow nothing, you reap nothing. But actually, it's kind of like even worse than nothing because wind, you know, um, is kind of neutral. Like sometimes it could cool you down. It's not that bad. But a whirlwind, a whirlwind is not really ever anything good or positive. A whirlwind is something destructive. So actually, they reaped back destruction they sowed nothing and they got destruction now the principle of you reap what you sow is found throughout scripture galatians 6 7 and 8 talks about it <clears throat> the jews were chasing after false religion deaf mute idols there's not much in the world that is more of a nothing than an idol i've been to to stores and they have all hundreds of idols you know they're selling. And Isaiah talks about it. Okay, a person goes to the forest and he chops down a tree and he cuts up the tree and half of the tree uses for firewood and the other half of the tree, he makes an idol. You know, again, it's a little bit crazy. Like, don't you realize this thing actually has no power? You have power over it. Why are you making it into an idol? These things cannot talk. They cannot move. They're not capable of thought or response. So what Hosea is saying is following after these idols gets you nowhere. It is pointless. It is just as pointless as if you are sowing the wind. And in fact, when you do this, when you pursue these nothings, you will receive destruction to yourself, the whirlwind sent by God. So whenever we chase after the world, Satan and the world have big promises. This is what you can get. You'll be happy. You'll have fun. You'll enjoy it. No one will know. All of the promises that the world gives you, they won't be fulfilled. They'll come up empty in the end and it will leave you standing there feeling very very foolish for having trusted in it to begin with hosea chapter 8 verse 7 it says the standing grain has no heads it shall yield no flower <clears throat> if it were to yield strangers would devour it so hosea goes on to describe there your harvest is going to be barren god is going to smite the israelites he's going to punish you by causing crop failure and famine this is very much like uh, what is going on in the book of Haggai. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So the harder you work, the less return you get. This is what was going to happen to them. Do you pursue idols? Then God is not going to bless you. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, if you obey and if you follow me, then I will bless you. I'll bless every single aspect of your life, your family, your homes, your land, everything. But if you don't follow me and obey me, then there will be a curse and everything will be cursed, including your family, your home, your land, and everything. And so because they did not follow God, they were chasing after idols, then the land would not yield its produce for them. So this is something which I sometimes call reverse providence. Uh, that is, providence was not working in their favor. God was working behind the scenes against them to discipline them for their sin.
So what's the lesson for us? God can and does discipline people. Sometimes he uses natural ways. If you follow after the world, like the prodigal son who went and he, he got the money and he partied and he, he drank and he did all these things and probably had all these friends latching onto him and using up all his money. At the end of that time, where are his friends? He got nothing. He had to work at a pig farm and he wanted to eat the food which they were eating. Like sometimes God uses natural means. Like you go after the world and you end up with nothing. And then other times... He actually intervenes to discipline those people and to tell us, as he was saying in the book of Haggai, consider your ways. We need to consider our ways. Now moving forward, verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. They're going to be punished. A useless vessel. They've gone to Assyria for help and they have hired lovers. Um, what does that mean? Uh, this lover is not talking about uh, a physical person. It, it's in the book of Hosea, we see the picture of marriage, right? Between Hosea and Gomer is a picture of God and his marriage to uh, the nation of Israel. And so this is spiritual adultery. They are being unfaithful in their covenant to God and they're pursuing um, idols. They're pursuing help elsewhere, um, outside of the Lord. And they, specifically, they're going to Assyria. They're going to Egypt for help. They're looking to pay people to help them rather than coming to God who would have helped them for free. <clears throat> so God wanted to use his people as a light to the nations, but they became a useless vessel. They did not fulfill the purpose which he called them to do. So we should think, what has God called us to do? And are we doing it? The sad thing about Israel is they didn't do what God called them to do. Now, the good news is Jesus came in and fulfilled all of the things for the whole nation of Israel, what they were supposed to do. Jesus did himself in one man. What about us? What has God called us to do? 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, <clears throat> anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Let's read 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let us be useful to the master. How do you think God wants to use you? What has he called you to do? What are you a vessel for? Have you prepared yourself to do this task? Are you doing this task? Hopefully God will never look at us and say, useless vessel. So again, we see more in verse 10 about the discipline and the punishment that is coming, that is coming soon. I will soon gather them up. The time was ticking. They didn't realize how close it was getting to their punishment. Perhaps they thought we could repent later. The time was ticking. When the judgment came, it came swiftly. Let's move to verse 11 through 14. In these verses, we can see that the Israelites are very religious sinners. Because Ephraim has <clears throat> multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. 
they shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. Okay. So Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning. So we see the people of Israel were very religious. They didn't abandon religion. They didn't say, okay, religion is bad. They just replaced the true and pure worship of God with a false religion, with a syncretic religion. The altars were then not a place to come to get forgiveness and cleanse their sins, but those altars which they built because they built them in defiance of God's commands and to do idolatrous things, those altars became a place where their sin was multiplied even more. So their religion was worse than not having any religion at all. Their religion was false and actually multiplied their sinning. So the world might say, you know, oh, every religion is equal. As long as you're sincere, everybody will end up in the same place. Universalism. God does not agree. The truth is, by its very nature, exclusive. There is one way to God and every other way does not lead to him at all. leads to judgment. So God created spiritual people. We are spiritual. Every person is spiritual. It is this nature that causes people to seek to fill the empty void inside of them by performing various religious rituals. They, they think that the religion will bring them close to God. But empty ritual cannot fulfill us and cannot fill us and cannot satisfy us. We need an actual relationship with the living God. We can only have that through Jesus Christ. So if we're not following God's way, then our religion actually could make us more guilty and culpable in front of him. Verse 12, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Now, if someone very important were to write a letter to you, maybe the president, maybe your favorite actor or your favorite athlete, and they wrote a personal letter to you, would you pay attention to it? Would you read it? I think you would. You'd probably treasure it. You'd probably reread it many, many times. And so God's saying, look, if I were to write my laws for you, you should pay attention. But the people had no desire to read or to heed God's word. It was strange to them. They're like, mm, you know, what is this? Why should we pay attention to it? They just didn't care. They didn't want it. Reminds me of the king in the time of Jeremiah. When the scroll was brought to him, he ripped it into pieces and burnt it. God's word is never strange to those who seek him. His word should be a treasure. It should be sweet like a honeycomb. It's worth studying. It's worth memorizing. And then we should seek to obey it. We should study it. We should obey it because it's important and it can change our lives. And so that's always our goal in these Bible studies is to first think, what is God saying? What does this mean? We study the meaning to the original audience. And then we think, how does it apply to our lives today? What is God saying to me? How can I take in, obey this and do it? And how does God want my life to change based on what I've read? So we should treasure God's word. Let's think about application. How can you treasure God's word this week? If Again, if your favorite athlete wrote you a letter, you would probably read it. Can you do less for a message from the Most High God? How can you actually treasure it? Let's not put it last. Let's not take it for granted. Let's think how we can treasure God's word. It's not a strange thing. It's a wonderful thing that he has revealed himself to us because without that, we could never know who he is. Verse 13. 
As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. So again, they held to a form of belief in God. They still had these outward rituals, but the things were empty. They were mixed up with all the, the false religions around them. You know, God did not like being called a calf. The thing is about this calf, if you look at the original words they used for this calf, they actually called this calf Yahweh. Also in the time of the Exodus, when they came out, Aaron made the golden calf, they called it Yahweh. So they weren't saying, okay, we're going to go worship Molech or something, or Baal. They said, we're worshiping Yahweh, but Yahweh is this calf, or this calf at least represents him. Yahweh did not like being called a calf. He's not. I mean, think how limiting that is. The God of the entire universe, who created thousands and millions of galaxies, each one with millions and millions of stars, and you say, yeah, he looks like this calf. You know? It's just utterly and abhorrently ridiculous. So God doesn't like it. God doesn't like people to worship him in a false way or in the wrong way. And he is the creator. He is the designer. So he deserves true, spiritual, correct worship. He doesn't accept their sacrifices. Look, I'm not going to accept them. People say, well, as long as you're sincere, God will accept you. Actually, God will accept you if you worship him and come to him the way that he said that we should worship and come to him. He's God. We are not. So we cannot decide the way we want to come to God. He decides the way. We have to respect it, listen, and follow. So the Lord says, I don't accept it. I don't accept your sacrifices. God cares about our motivation for why we're worshiping him, right? So he cares about our heart. You could follow the rule perfectly, but if your heart isn't there, then God is not very interested and he doesn't accept it. On the other hand, your heart could perhaps be somewhat okay, but out of ignorance or whatever reason, you're not following the way that he said. God doesn't like that either. He wants the way that we worship him and our heart behind it both to be right. And then he accepts it. Okay, and then again, he says, he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Whew. That's a heavy statement. And I hope that God will never say this about us, that he will remember our iniquity and punish our sins. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry, righteous, holy God. It's a terrible thing to face God when you know that your debt is still outstanding and has not been paid. What's the solution? Well, for them, the problem was they had forgotten their maker. Because they forgot their maker, they forgot their creator, so the judgment was coming. We need to remember who is our creator, who put us here, why did he put us here, and remember that always in our mind. Remember, he is our creator, he made us. We owe our life, physical and spiritual, to him. We have one solution. Confess our sin, believe in Jesus, then he washes away our sins and remembers them no more. If we go to this world, sowing the wind, chasing after the things in this world, then we will be unsatisfied if they are. But if we follow the Lord faithfully as he's prescribed with the right heart, the right motivation, then he blesses us and we can live that joyful, meaningful, purposeful life that he wants us to have. So I hope that this passage in Hosea chapter 8 has blessed you. I would invite you to join us next time. We'll continue moving forward. We'll be studying Hosea chapter 9. I would also like to invite you to like and subscribe to our channel. Whenever you hit that like button, that subscribe button, that hit the bell, it tells YouTube that this uh, channel has good content. And so it supports the message of this channel and it can go out to more people. So we hope more people can study and obey God's word.
So God bless, and I look forward to seeing you next time. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.